Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former Major League All-Star, Wally Joyner. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by an all-star who played 16 years in the big leagues. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Wally Joyner. Wally, thanks for coming on the program. Mr. Brett Boone, thank you for having me. Okay, you played with Bob Boone. You played for Bob Boone. You played against Aaron Boone. You got traded for Brett Boone. What do you know about the Boones? I know a lot about the Boones, (laughs) and... uh, the best part of the Boones is Sue Boone. Who yeah, that's is, that's uh, uh, that's a popular sentiment on this show. Yeah, that's she's the uh, matriarch. She kept the Boones all in line, and uh, we loved uh, our time with all of the Boones. But um, you know, my first year in '86, um, your dad Bob was a great great friend of mine, and uh, I have great memories uh, of learning how to play the game the right way with your dad. Um, I, I, uh, I have great memories of learning how to play the great game of bridge with your dad. So uh, it was a lot of fun. And gosh, many, many years ago, you and Aaron and Matt were running around the clubhouse. And so, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a Boone family fan. And it's funny because I was, you know, I was getting ready for Wally Jordan. I forgot that we got traded for one another. I, we did. I, that had completely slipped my mind. You were in, uh, you were in San Diego. I was in Atlanta, and uh, you know, I'm sure you got the the call at a similar time I did. Said yeah, we're switching spots, but it was <laughs> uh, it was a great trade for me. I don't know about you. You were leaving a great team, and I was going to a great team, and um, you know, the Padres were in a rebuilding. Um, atmosphere and yeah it was uh brett boone ryan klesko and i think a minor leaguer for kilvio Veras, myself and reggie sanders it was a it's quite a big trade in uh in the winter time of 99 yeah and Re- reggie was a teammate of mine in cincinnati so we we uh were going separate ways at that time you're right atlanta i was coming we were coming off a of world series uh the caveat is we did get swept, uh, but nevertheless, I got to go to World Series in 1999, uh, and I was going to a Padre team where, yeah, it was it was slim pickings. We ended up uh, we ended up finishing fourth that year, but it was kind of a springboard for me. I I eventually got to go back uh, to Seattle for yeah. the next five years. So my one stop, I'll tell you, it's not bad. It it always sucks when you're not winning. But it wasn't a bad place to to stay by the beach for <laughs> for a year. Um, I'm really interested in this. You went to Brigham Young. <clears throat> Tell me what is different about going to Brigham Young than another major college? Well, um, <clears throat> I don't know what's different. I, I, I that was the only college that I went to. I, um, you know, talking about the Atlanta Braves. I I was born and raised in in Atlanta. I was born right downtown Atlanta, Georgia, and grew up in the outskirts uh, of Atlanta. And so, um, you know, I, I love baseball and um, I was a big Bay, uh, Braves fan. So to be traded in 2000 
to go back to the Braves and play there for one year and play for my home team. That was a lot of fun. But uh, growing up, I was the youngest of five in my family. I had two older brothers, two older sisters. And uh, as I was getting uh, to my junior and senior year in high school, um, you know, I wanted to see if I could continue to play baseball at a, at a higher level in college. And <clears throat> I was being recruited uh, quite extensively in the South. And I had a brother and a sister that were attending BYU. So I thought, you know, it'd be kind of fun to get away from home. I'd never gotten away from home, but also be close to family. So I actually wrote BYU and said, hey, um, I have interest in playing college baseball and could I be a fit for BYU? And it worked out. So um, I loved it. it. It's a beautiful campus. Um, we ended up having a, a great team for three years. And um, we, my junior year, this is kind of interesting. I didn't know this until about a, two months ago, but my junior year at BYU, we were in the uh, regionals. We had won our conference and we were playing in the regionals. We were actually rated the number one team in the nation. And uh, we were at Arizona State on a Friday night. And there, you know, nine on, there's nine players on Arizona State. There's nine players that are starting for BYU. And I heard 16 out of those 18 starters made it to the big league. So, that was uh, that was pretty impressive, especially for BYU, who isn't known for a, a baseball dominant school. But uh, during that time, we could hold our own. It was a lot of fun. You mentioned Stone Mountain, Georgia. Was it always baseball for you, Wally? Did you play other sports? No, I um, I, I I loved basketball um, for many different reasons. Um, uh, to be honest, baseball can be uh, monotonous. It can be boring. It can be uneventful. And playing basketball, I was the point guard. Uh, I started. I ran the. I ran the team. And so, you know, after the game, I was exhausted, and and uh, I felt like I accomplished something. But um, I learned quite quickly that I couldn't jump. I couldn't run real fast. Uh, I wasn't very strong, and so the game of basketball was going to pass me by. So um, I, uh, I didn't play after high school and uh, focused on baseball. And I think it was the right decision. Went to Brigham Young in 1983. You're the third round pick of the angels. Um, and you sign. What was that? We, we all have different, you know, we all have different journeys that, you know, I talked to a lot of people on the podcast that, that go straight out of high school. Um, and I watched the climate today. I see the kids today going out of high school and, you, you know, you talk to them. I'm sure you do, too. You talk to parents of young kids for advice. Hey, what do you think about that 18 year old signing? It's a different world. And, and now we've lived that life and we've seen the minor leagues. We see what it's like. We see that 17 year old versus that you know, a little more mature 21 year old coming out of college. Um, I remember as a high school man, I wanted to sign and I didn't get drafted high enough. So I went to college reluctantly. I didn't want to go to college, but it, it ended up being the best thing for me in the long run. I think it's, it's so rare for a kid to be really ready for professional baseball at the age of 18, 17. You know, a lot of times they're, they're a big fish in a little pond in their city, whatever. They're the stud. But pro ball is different. For me, 
uh, coming out of college, I felt a lot better at 21 years old. I felt like I was ready for it. I got through the minor leagues really quick. How was that adjustment for you coming out of Division One baseball, going to the minor leagues for the first time? Yeah, I agree with you, Brett. Um, I was way too young out of high school to go professionally. I, it actually scared me because uh, I was still a, a young boy and, uh, you know, uh, competing against men, uh, arguably, um, you, you draw the short stick quite a bit. And so as much as I loved baseball and was excited about the chance of uh, maybe signing and going professionally, it it, it it looked very ominous, and uh, for for many reasons, uh, my maturity, my athletic ability, my strength, uh, my age. Uh, you know, I, I you you really don't belong in a professional um, world when you're 17 or 18. You're 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 just you're you're. I think that there's not an upside or a big upside and there's a lot of downside to it. So I, I chose BYU. I went to BYU and those three years were an unbelievable, an unbelievable opportunity for me. Uh, I saw better competition and I uh, competed at that level and got better at that level. And then at the end of my three years, I was dominant at that level. So the confidence was so valuable just like you after college, hey, I'm ready. Here we go. I got some confidence. I think I can do it. I know I can do it. And so let's go see if I can at the next level instead of being behind the eight ball coming out of high school. You, you do have some training and some coaching, but it's not nearly the same uh, because they, they, uh, the, the professional level – you don't have a lot of time for second chances and uh, you either can do it or you can't. And if you can't, they're going to leave you behind. So BYU was a great step for me. Uh, it allowed me to grow. It allowed me to get stronger. It allowed me to get older. And uh, I was a different player coming out of BYU than I would have been coming out of uh, high school in, in Georgia. So it was the right decision for me. I, I, you know, everybody's different, but I would probably say, that um, uh, it, it's it's disappointing that you don't go pro out of high school. It's exciting and all of this, but I think you have a better chance of attaining the big leagues if you go through college. And I think there are exceptions, but I think there are rare exceptions. Yeah. You, know, you once in a while you see a Mike Trout, you see a yep. Harper, you see a Harper type player that they just transcend the, you know, the norm. They're not, uh, they're, they're physically mature. They're mentally mature beyond their years, but yep. it's a special guy. And there's only, if there's only a handful that you run into, you know, cause you see a lot of great talent, but there's a lot of uh, time to grow and not only grow up from a, from a baseball standpoint, but in life, you know, being away from home for the first time, it, it's, it seems daunting to me to tell your 18 year old is just, you know, has a has a curfew at your house that, OK, by the way, now you got to go play 142 games. And, right. when you, and when you stink, you got to play tomorrow. And then when you stink again, guess what? You're in the lineup again and again and again. And if you stink long enough, you get fired. Yeah, <laughs> I don't You're know right. that. I don't know that the average 18 year old's ready for that. Uh, your minor league career. And, and I saw this. I never got to do it, Wally. I, I, I went to instructional ball, Arizona fall ball in 
when I was in the minor leagues, was just getting started up, never played in that league. But a lot of colleagues of mine, a lot of teammates, uh, a lot of guys I played against had a, had a great experience going to winter ball. Uh, talk through winter ball. I know Puerto Rico w- was a key part of your development before you got to the big leagues. Um, talk about that winter ball experience and what it's like for a professional in the minor leagues. Well, I will. Uh, I'd love to do that. And uh, I'll preface it by telling you that, uh, you know, what we just talked about as far as, you know, can you uh, out of high school, can you handle the uh, the disappointments? Can you handle the the um, uh, the bad days? So uh, I I go to college. I get drafted by the Angels. Uh, they send me to high A ball in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, the team is already halfway through their season, and I start playing. And three weeks into me playing, I uh, I, I tear ligaments out of my thumb um, because I'm uh, I'm not used to the wooden bat, and you know I swing at everything, and I got jammed so bad one one game that it, uh, it 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 tore ligaments in my thumb. So I'm playing with it. It's bothering me. I'm not playing nearly the way I, I can, and my strength and my swing is is not what I want it to be. So they send me to get uh, diagnosis. The diagnosis comes back as, uh, you know, I have a torn ligament in my thumb. It needs surgery. Or if you don't choose surgery, you need some time for it to uh, heal on its own. So I go home. I don't play the last month of the season, uh, which is – you know, you don't. You never want that to happen. Now, now I'm injury. Now I'm injured. You know, can I come back from it? So, you bring up uh, instructional league, which is why I, I remember this story. So I go home, and then they invite me to go to instructs. And instructional league is for players that everybody thinks has a, a chance to uh, advance in the minor league. So I'm I'm down there with all the good players. I'm not in shape yet, so it takes me a week to uh, get in shape, and I'm hitting in the cage and trying to get my timing back and everything. I, I'm i allowed to, to start playing again, so I'm, I'm in my first game playing at first base. We're on defense. Uh, there's a, a big outfielder from the Oakland A's that, that just got a base hit, and our catcher decides to throw behind him. So I grab the ball from the catcher on a pickoff. I go down to – to tag him and this guy jumps back to the base and misses the base and comes right down on my foot. The metal spike goes right through my shoe into my big toe. It breaks my big toe. I got blood going everywhere and they carry me off the field. So, uh, my, the start of my professional career is going backwards. I don't play anymore. I go home, I get healthy from all of those injuries and I go back to double uh, a baseball the next year. I have a great year. I get invited to big league camp with the angels, which is the 1985 is when I met your dad in, in the minor in, in, in spring training. I met Bobby Gritch. I met Doug DeSensei. I met Reggie Jackson. I mean, this angels team in 1985 was unbelievable with potential hall of famers and veterans that are very, very successful. Uh, Brian Downing is on the team. And uh, there's a player, I don't know if you guys remember this guy, his name was Rod Carew. Um, 
Uh, I do remember. He was uh, the epitome of Major League Baseball. He was uh, an incredible player, and he's playing first base, right? So I'm trying to get to the big leagues, and Rod Carew, who is going to play first base until he wants to not play first base, is at first base. And so I have to stay positive. I go to big league camp. Gene Mock is the manager, and this is in 1984. No, 85, the spring of 85. And, Brett, I think I hit 500 in spring training in the big leagues. I was uh, I had a lot of at-bats. I would play the fifth inning until the ninth inning. Uh, I would come in for Rod Carew, who got his two at-bats or three at-bats, and then he was finished. And so I had a lot of, a lot of exposure, and I played well. And at the end of spring training, Gene Mott brought me in, and he, he said, son – it didn't matter if you would have hit 800. That first baseman, Rod Carew, he's going after his 3,000 hit this year. And so, son, you're going to go to AAA, and uh, we'll see you at another time. So as much as that was disappointing, I'd never played AAA yet, but I was so close to being in the big leagues that I, I could taste it, and I was excited and somewhat disappointed. So I struggle in AAA for the half the season, I'm probably hitting 220, can't do anything right, and I'm pressing and and uh, I'm just trying too hard. So I need to go play winter ball, and I get invited to go to Puerto Rico, play for the Mayaguez Indios, and uh, we had a great team down there. And my roommate at the time down in uh, Puerto Rico was Harold Reynolds, who is one of the anchors of uh, – the MLB network. He's a good friend of mine and he was a great second baseman for the Seattle Mariners. Did you play with Harold or was he gone by the time you got to Seattle? Harold was my, what was to me, what Rod Carew was to you. So when I got to Seattle, um, that's when they made the change. You know, it happens to all of us eventually. Yes, but sir. he he was kind of the you know he was the guy in Seattle and won a couple gold gloves and uh, he was ending his tenure in Seattle and and it was time for him to move on and I was coming up. So yes, I knew Harold at at a very young age, and then since then. You know, I've, I've kept in contact with Harold. I actually did a, a segment with him at the combine this uh, this year for the, you know, they're starting that big league combine. So, yeah, I, right. I, I've uh, I've got a lot of history with Harold and and uh, always has been really good to me. Well, Harold and I are great friends and and uh, we were roommates in Mayaguez and uh, we hung out every day. Uh, we would go to the ballpark every day. But uh, my my three months in Puerto Rico, I would say, was probably the, the biggest game changer for me. Um, at BYU, I would always work out. I would be in the weight room, but my body just wasn't ready to, uh, to change. Um, I, felt, I felt like I was getting stronger, uh, but it, it wouldn't take, um, and it was frustrating. Um, my nickname at BYU was the bowling pin because I, I had a body shaped like a bowling pin with uh, narrow shoulders and a big butt. And, uh, you know, I used that to my advantage. But, uh, again, I, uh, it just wasn't clicking. But I go to Mayaguez, and, I mean, this is in 1985, uh, and the, uh, the Nautilus equipment was a big uh, – game changer in the world of uh of 
physical fitness and, and weight training. And Mayaguez, for some reason, they opened up a Nautilus Fitness Center with all of the machines. And um, we lived in a great place. So I'd wake up in the morning. I would go work out, get a nice workout in. I'd come back. I'd jump in the pool and swim to get the uh, tension and everything out. I'd have lunch, and then I'd go to the ballpark and just hit and hit and hit. And uh, Jose Morales was my hitting coach down there, and we hit it off. And um, I ended up winning the Triple Crown down there, which hadn't been hadn't been done for 25 years. The last guy that did it was in 1960. And uh, the Mayaguez Indios won the league. We were very successful, and, and uh, I would say all of the players on that team – had a, uh, a stint in the big leagues or a long career in the big leagues. And uh, that was game-changing for me. In 1985, Rod Carew got his 3,000 hit, and the Angels chose to move on, just like Seattle Mariners chose to move on from Harold. And I got my opportunity. It wasn't – the job wasn't given to me. I had to go, and in spring training in 1986, 87, 88, 89, there was seven first basemen that wanted to play first, and I had to – put them all back into their right positions. And uh, I had to earn my spot every year, but I had, uh, I had a great uh, winter ball uh, season to jump, jump start me into the big leagues. And it, it gave me a lot of confidence to, uh, to play. And uh, I was lucky enough to play a long 16 year career. So it was fabulous. You get to the angels in 86 and 86 was it. Obviously, big, big year for you. Kind of changed the the whole dynamic. Uh, Rod had moved on. Uh, but you get to the Angels, and you mentioned Gene Mock. And, you know, Dad, my dad will talk about Gene Mock. Uh, you know, I knew him as a kid. Like you said, I was I was hanging around as a kid. I was 15, 16 years old. But uh, Dad can't say enough about Gene Mock. Gene Autry owned the, owned the team at the time. You mentioned Reggie Jackson, Bobby Gritch. Uh, I don't know if Chuck was Chuck Finley there yet, or did he come on a couple years later? Uh, he came up uh, maybe in May of that year. Um, okay, so he was in spring training, and then he he came on and was a dominant force for us. And it was, you know, Chuck had a great great career and was one of the best lefties in the game for a long time. Obviously, a huge year for you. You're an all star right out of the gate as, as a rookie. You hit two ninety with twenty two and a hundred. Uh, and your world kind of changed. I mean, I remember too, Wally, as a kid, and that year, 86, I think it was my sophomore, my junior year in high school. You know, and I'm coming to the games and, you know, watching you guys play, and uh, everything turned upside down. It was Wally World now. You know, we all hear that from the Griswolds, but you go from a minor leaguer to an all star to to the angels being referred to as Wally world. You're in your, you're in the home run derby as a rookie, which I want to hear your experience with that. I think you tied with, with strawberry. Uh, I didn't have as good a luck in my, in my home run derby <laughs> appearances, man, it's harder than, than it looked. I did it twice. Once I, I, you know, I was okay. I, I saved face and the other one, I just stunk, but uh, I want to hear yours about that, but your world going from BYU to, <clears throat> the minor leagues to to uh, winter ball. And now all of a sudden you're the focal point of the California Angels. That's a lot for anybody to take in that quick, but you're doing it your rookie year. Everything's coming together for you. Well, it was uh, going a thousand miles an hour. 
Uh, I was so excited to make the team. Um, you know, there's a lot of firsts that year. Um, ironically, we've talked about the Seattle Mariners. My first game ever in the, in, in the clubhouse and in the locker room. Um, we opened up uh, the 1986 season versus the Seattle Mariners in the kingdom, which isn't there anymore. Um, and, you know, the day before, uh, Gene Mock, uh, who was a great, great manager for me, I know he was tough for, on a lot of guys, and he was a no-nonsense manager. Uh, but you played hard, and uh, you if you were ready every day, you, you didn't have a problem with Gene Mock. And so he came up to me the day before we were, pra- we were having our last practice up in Seattle prior to the uh, season opener uh, the next day. And he came up and he said, son, congratulations. And uh, you're going to start tomorrow and you're going to hit third. And uh, I don't think that I remember anything else in 24 hours from that time until the game started I was so excited. I don't think I slept that night. Uh, we had a day game at 1 o'clock, and I think I had my helmet on at 11, right? I mean, I'm ready to go. I couldn't wait. And um, so we have the national anthem. We're hitting first. And um, the umpire says, play ball. And Bobby Gritch is leading off for the, uh, for the California Angels at the time. We were the California Angels at the time. And um, – so Mike Moore is um, is on the mound, and I've never ever seen a Major League Baseball pitch ever in, during the season in the dugout. So I'm sitting there. Umpire says, play ball. Mike Moore gets the sign, and he throws a pitch, and Bobby Gritch hits a home run, first pitch that I ever saw in the, in the big leagues. And I'm looking around, and everybody everybody's cheering, and I go, man, this is the big leagues. This is what happens. You're supposed to go up and hit doubles and homers, and this is what you do. And so I don't remember what Rupert Jones did because I'm on deck and I'm just – I'm not even thinking straight. And so it's my time to hit. I walk up, and the umpire says hello, and the announcer says, now hitting third, first baseman Wally Joyner, and I get in to hit. Mike Moore gets a sign, and he throws a cutter to me, and I swing out of my butt. And I think I hit the ball just above my hands and Mike Moore comes running in and it was a little blooper. I mean, it's a little blooper between the home plate and the pitcher's mound. And I get jammed so hard and Mike Moore comes running in and catches it and I run to first and I touch first base and I go, yeah, this is the big leagues. You better start changing something or you're not going to be up there very long. So that was my first at bat. Um I got two hits that game, but my first at bat I'll never forget. And um, but but Gene Mock, um, what a great great man. Um, and I, I I don't know what happened, Brett. I uh, I started playing great. I was focused. Um, I didn't miss pitches. Um, I got off to a great start, and all of a sudden we come home from a northeast road trip. And uh, it's a Friday night in Anaheim. And my, my first at bat, I walk out to hit. And all of a sudden, there's noise out in the right field stands. And it was so noisy that we had to stop the game. And we all look out there. And I didn't know anything about this, but we all look out there. And there was a fan base out there that unveiled this big sign that said, Detroit Tigers, welcome to Wally World. And um, 
off we go. Right. That was the first thing. That was the first time that it was ever connected to me. Um, you know, it was fitting 1985, uh, vacation movie had come out. The Griswolds, as you mentioned, were going to Wally world, which was an amusement park out in California and, and, you know, and Disneyland's right down the street. So, uh, it was a, a fun, catchy phrase. And, you know, the kid that grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia was now, uh, Wally world in the big leagues and I couldn't believe it. And it was a riot. It was so much fun. Yeah, you're a rookie. You got Wally World. You got you got Berman making up nicknames of uh, what is it? Wally Absorbing. Wally Absorbing Joiner. But the yeah. thing is, as soon as as soon as he coins a phrase or he gives you a nickname, you're kind of now you officially arrived. The the Wally World was cool, but when when Berman coined, especially oh, yeah. especially at that time, and you know yeah, something sure. that that really. Uh, different game now you know 2022 than when you were coming in than when i was coming in <clears throat> but i do remember and the key thing you told me is i was hitting third gene mock yeah. was hitting me third yeah. back then that three hole was that was rare air i mean i remember in 1995 uh, i had a couple years in the big leagues and um chipper jones was coming along for mm -hmm. the for the atlanta braves He's a rookie and he's hitting third, yep. which was unheard of. You know, usually the rookies, when you come up, myself included, you know, you hit sixth, you hit seventh, you work your way up to third. There's not too many guys out of the shoot. You were one of them that goes right to that three hole. And, and you remember back then it was a big deal if you were hitting third, if you were hitting fourth. Today's game, a little bit different. They're mixing lineups up all the time and moving them around. But I remember watching Chipper and going, wow. He's hitting third as a rookie. That is a, and he handled it. He was, well, you remember Chipper and obviously ended up being a hall of famer. One of the, uh, we both got to play with him. Uh, real. One of the, one of the best players I ever played with, but I remember that being a big deal and, and hitting third. It just didn't happen too often. So not only are you coming in, but you knew what hitting third meant. Uh, not just, Hey kid, you're starting tomorrow. You'll be in the lineup. You check the lineup, find out where you're hitting. You're hitting third. I think that's, that's huge, especially in 1986. Uh, I can't agree with you more. Um, you know, I think, yes, unfortunately the game has changed. Um, you know, uh, arguably, uh, for the better or for worse, I would probably say right now the game needs to get better. Um, and, and I think that you nailed it. I think that there are positions in the, in the, in the sport and in the lineup that mean something. I'm hitting first for this reason. I'm hitting second for this reason. I'm hitting third for this reason. Instead of I'm just hitting third or I'm hitting sixth or I'm hitting ninth. I mean, when you hit ninth in the, um, American League, you're you're supposed to get on base. You're supposed to flip the lineup so that the guys that are the better hitters, uh, arguably first, second, third, and fourth, get to start hitting with men on base. Um, in the National League, you hit eighth uh, before their last year before they they changed it to the DH. Uh, you hit eighth because you had a great eye and you could work the count and get on base so that the pitcher could hit. So that the next inning, you could start off with the first, you know, the leadoff guy. So, absolutely, there are there were reasons, and I think that there are still reasons 
to hit first, second, third, and fourth. Uh, it was an honor for me to hit third for Gene Mock. It was difficult to hit third for Gene Mock, but he knew I could do it, and I was going to do it for him, and I worked my butt off because hitting third for Gene Mock meant that there was going to be a guy at second base with one out because the leadoff guy was going to get on. We were going to bunt the guy over to second, and now I'm hitting with a guy at second. I got to get the job done. <clears throat> or I'm hitting with the, with the fast guy at first base that's going to steal, and I need to take some pitches for him to get to second. Or we're going to hit and run, and I got to pull the ball where I, when I'm supposed to. I, I got to hit the ball the other way when I'm supposed to. I got to be able to bunt. I got to be able to do all of these things. And it was an honor and a privilege to be looked at as a player that could do all of those things at any given time. So I, I, I took a lot of pride in my ability to play the game. I took a lot of pride in my ability to, to hit. And, um, you know, I would probably say uh, one of my biggest uh, – my, one of the – my biggest uh, achievements, I guess, would be I'm, I'm one of only a very few that had more walks than strikeouts in my career. So um, that was great. I, I love the game. I love the strategy of the game. I love to go up and and uh, compete and uh, be able to be asked to do anything at any given time and, and produce. So uh, I appreciate you uh, bringing that up. All right, give me the incident. I had no idea about this. In 1986, playing the Yankees, get a knife thrown at you. Oh, yeah. I've never had a knife thrown at me. <laughs> well, but I read that. I want to know, what is the real story? So, in 1986, um, we go to – we're on the road. We have a two-game series with the Yankees before we travel home. And uh, we sweep them. We win both games. The, the last game, Mike Witt throws a complete game. So, I'm at first base. And uh, – we get the last out, so everybody's on the mound congratulating Mike Witt. I give him a high five, and I, I congratulate him. And then I feel something, you know, on my left shoulder as if it was a tap, right? It was just something that hit me. And I thought Mike wanted to say something, so I looked back at Mike, and I said, what's that? He goes, what are you talking about? And I said, I thought you bumped my shoulder. He goes, no. And so I looked down, and there was a, I don't know, six-inch. I mean, it was really – incredible there was a six inch buck knife that was sticking in the ground and we had like eight guys on the mound we had it was a mass of people on the mound and this knife was thrown somewhere from the stadium to the to the mound and it luckily missed everybody and it you know it it it, it kind of brushed me but went to the ground so because it hit me we talk about, you know, Wally Joyner, you know, just miss, gets missed by a buck knife, but I don't think he was throwing at, at me. It was He was throwing it at the Angels, or she was. Who knows who was throwing it, right? And uh, so it was a big event. It was a big deal. Uh, the, the, uh, the rest of the story is we went back home, and as you know, in baseball, you know, two or three series later, the team comes to play you uh, – for, for our uh, chance to play the Yankees at home. So it's a Friday night, and the game starts, and Dave Winfield's playing right field. 
and he goes out to uh, warm up for the for the first inning, and all of these rubber knives are thrown at him, and on all of them it said "New York Yankees, welcome to Wally World." Right. So it was uh, it, it was a pretty funny ending to the story, but yeah, that that was a little spooky uh, during the game and at the end of the game having a buck knife thrown in uh, towards you. You mentioned you go to the All Star game, and that was also a big uh, year in the postseason. And man, I remember it. You know, once again, I'm a kid. Dad's catching, and I'll never forget. I'll never forget. <clears throat> the the Henderson home run. Yeah. Because I was sitting in a box down the left field line and I forget who I was sitting with, but I remember we were going to, we were betting on when Donnie Moore struck out Henderson, was my dad going to throw one arm up in the air or was he going to throw <laughs> two arms up in the air? You know, we were betting a buck yeah, or two sure. bucks. I'll bet you this, bet you that. Cause it was in, in our mind, you know, and in, in my mind at the time as a fan, and, and watching dad and hoping you guys win. It was already a foregone conclusion that, that he was going to no strike. Doubt. He was going to strike out right there. and The game was over. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously everybody knows what happened after that. <clears throat> the, um, and, and I look at the pitch to this day. Wasn't that bad of a pitch? It, it wasn't. Pitch. Yeah. It's a <laughs> Hindu went down and dug that thing out. Yeah. That's what dreams are made of. What a, what an unbelievable thing. People don't even remember. That wasn't the ending. I think that no. was game six. So you still had a chance to come back and win the next day. Uh, Boston ends up beating you going on. Uh, take me through that. Are, are you, were you thinking like I was thinking in the booth? Well, um, let me go back a couple of fun stories. So I, in the middle of the uh, season, I, I, um, I was honored enough to uh, be elected to start as the first rookie ever to be elected by the fans to start in an all-star game. And, and uh, it was an incredible honor and an, an incredible achievement. And uh, um, I go to Houston for the all-star game and I'm a kid in the candy store. I walk in and there are hall of famers in that, in that locker room and um, just, you know, second base, shortstop, third base, outfield, pitchers, everybody was, was the who's who of of baseball at that time. And here I am as a 23-year-old, 24-year-old. Um, and Dick Hauser was the manager because he uh, took the Kansas City Royals to the World Series the year before. So the World Series managers get to manage the next All-Star game. So I'm in and we're out practicing and I come in and I shower and uh, Dick Hauser calls me into his office and I walk in and he shakes my hand. He says, son, congratulations. What a great achievement. Uh, you get to start the all-star game tomorrow. And he said, here's what we're going to do. And he says, do you see that gentleman right out there? And he points over to um, Don Mattingly. And he said, that guy for the Yankees won the American League MVP last year, and he has yet to play in an all-star game, and you're starting in front of him, which you should be very proud of. And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, well, here's what we're going to do. You're going to start, and you're going to play first in the first inning, and then you're going to hit in the bottom of the first inning, and then you and I are going to watch him play eight innings 
from the dugout. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. Uh, I'm happy to do that. And I appreciate it. So uh, I got my one inning, my one at bat. And, uh, you know, rightfully so, uh, Don Mattingly, who's an incredible player and the MVP in 1985, uh, he played uh, a few more innings than I did. So, but I achieved that. It was something that they couldn't take away from me. So I was happy to be involved and to be a part of it. So we had, a, as you mentioned, we had a great season. We won the uh, American League West and we're playing the Boston Red Sox to go to the uh, World Series. And you might have forgotten about this, but um, uh, unbeknownst to me and everybody else in Seattle, I mean, a lot of my a lot of my uh, memories came from Seattle. So I. Right after the All-Star break, we, we opened up uh, again in Seattle. And during the series, I hit a foul ball off of my right shin, and it hurt like the Dickens. And uh, my next at bat, I hit it in the same place. I couldn't lay off that pitch inside. And uh, it cut my skin open, and I was bleeding pretty bad. And they carried me off the field. I went to the hospital to check – x-rays to see if I broke anything and everything was intact. But uh, unbeknownst to all of us, I contracted staff in my body in that, in that wound. And um, the second half of the season, I was always complaining about being tired and I didn't have any energy. And, and everybody's answer to that was, well, you're a rookie. You're not used to playing every day. You're traveling. You're playing nine innings a game, which I was. And I was proud to do that. But I was just exhausted. So postseason starts, we're playing the Boston Red Sox. I'm hitting about 500 against them, 450, um, hitting doubles and a couple of homers and playing well. And Friday night, game – had to be game three. Game three, um, I elude a tag at home place – at home plate against Rick, Rich Gedman, the catcher. And I twist my ankle, my right ankle, and it bothers me a little bit. I finish the game. I go home, and in the middle of the night, I wake up, and I, I've got the flu. I, I'm, I got chills. I got a temperature, and I'm like, man, is this the worst luck ever? I, I can't get sick right now. We're, we're going to the World Series. And um, so I hop out of bed the next morning, and I collapse on my right leg and I look down and I got red streaks going up my leg and I don't know what it is and I, it's very painful and I hobble to the car and I go right to the stadium and the trainers are in the training room and uh, I show them and they they call the doc they called the uh, ortho they call all the docs to come in and so as I'm waiting they have ice on my leg because it's red hot and uh, the doc comes in, the dermatologist and the doc comes in and they take the ice off of my leg and they look right at it. And I'm telling you, you know, immediately they go, we got to get you right to the hospital. So I still don't know what's going on. I go to the hospital and I, I, I find out that I have staph in my blood and it's, uh, it's very, very serious. And um, I have surgery in my room and they have to open me up. And uh, so I missed the rest of the series. So I'm, I'm in the recovery room when, when uh, Dave Henderson hits that home run. And I'm telling you, all of these alarms are going off outside because everybody's watching the game 
And when he, when he hit that home run, everybody gave themselves a, a morphine drip because it was so uh, painful to everybody. It was a, so yeah. for me, I was uh, I, I was banged up and, and I was watching just like everybody else, and I was so disappointed. Uh, we did have a chance, as you said, uh, that tight that uh, that they went up. It was the bottom of the eighth. They went up six five, I think. We tied them in the bottom of the ninth with bases loaded, and we couldn't get the run in. And we lost the game in extra innings, and then we had to go back for games six and seven in Boston, and we lost both of them. So it was a, a devastating end to my uh, great rookie season. You broke up two no-hitters in the ninth that year, I think, too, of Charlie Huff and, and Walt Terrell. Like you said, what a, what a great <laughs> – well – to to use the college term freshman campaign it was it, it was, was a great freshman it was uh, unbelievable couldn't believe it um it was i mean yes i, I you know um, gratefully i uh, was uh i worked hard enough to get an opportunity to play and i took advantage of it and great things happened and bad things happened and all of the above but arguably, 87 was a better year for you. You had 285, 34, 117. Uh, and you ha- end up having a great career with with the California Angels at the time. 1991, you hit 301 with 21 and 96. And you leave, and you leave the Angels. Be uh, uh, a free agent. You go to the Royals. How was that for you, being a, just a kid when you signed uh, with California? Back in 83. So that's all you've known is the California Angels. All of a sudden, you're going to the Royals. I mean, obviously, you did it. It was a free free agent situation for you, but you moved on. How was that for you? Was it kind of surreal? Like, wow, I've been here for so long. All of a sudden, I'm moving on. Well, it was, uh, if if anybody remembers the press conference, it was very emotional for me. Um, You know, um, that was, as you said, that was all I knew. Uh, the Angels, um, great years, great success. I had a great fan base. Uh, and to be honest with you, I didn't want to go anywhere. And uh, during that time of uh, negotiations with the Angels, um, believe it or not, I agreed to stay twice with the Angels. And both times it was negated by uh, Mrs. Autry for some reason. And, uh, it was disappointing. Um, I was at the winter meetings and, uh, during the winter meetings, I was told by, uh, angel executive that, uh, it was probably best for me to go somewhere else. So that was the decision that was actually made for me. And, um, the Royals were gracious enough to uh, want me to play for them. I signed a one-year deal, which was unheard of. You know, a free agent signing a one-year deal. Uh, you you play six years, you get that opportunity to be a free agent, and then you you just sign a one-year deal. But, you know, two months into that one-year deal, I signed a multi-year contract with the Royals. So my time with Kansas City was great. I got to play with one of my – Idols growing up, George Brett, who was one of the best Hall of Famers I ever played with. And uh, then I was uh, in 1995, uh, I was traded to the Padres with a very, very good friend of mine, Kevin Towers, who was at BYU 
when I was there. He was one of the uh, players that uh, made it as a professional player. He was an outstanding pitcher for the Padres, and he blew his elbow out, and he became a scout. Then he became a general manager, and when he became a general manager for the Padres, I was his first trade to come over, and um, my years with the Padres were, were incredible thanks to uh, Kevin. Years uh, with the Royals, 94, 95, you hit 300 uh, both years. You, you got to tell me the story. You played with dad as a rookie and those first few <laughs> years actually in, in California. Now all yeah. of a sudden, uh, Bob Boone's your skipper. Yeah. Now I, I had him in 94 as a, as a bench coach. Yep. And believe me, Wally, I got that phone call. I got traded to the Cincinnati Reds and, and Davey Johnson's on the phone. Uh, Brett, uh, it's good to have you. You know, the typical call you get. It's good to have you uh, over here in Cincinnati. And I'm leaving Seattle. And I'm, I got a bunch of things running through my mind. And, and Davey said, is your dad around? I said, dad happens to be here. He's at the house. And he says, uh, can you put him on the line? I said, yeah. So my dad comes back after about 10 minutes talking to Davey. And he says, well, how would you feel if I was your bench coach? And I went, no way. Dad's going to be following me around and this and that. <laughs> Wally, it ended up being one of the funnest years I've ever had. My dad handled it so much differently than just being a little kid, how I thought he was going to handle it. Uh, when I came to the ballpark, it was player coach. Yep. And when we left the ballpark, I got to have lunch once in a while with my dad, but he was over the top professional. Didn't make, didn't make it weird at all. You know, yeah. as you think as the kid, it's going to be weird now, not that you're his son, but oh, no. I, you're, I was a son. You're, you're a teammate. And now all of a sudden Bob Boone's your skipper. You got to at least touch on that a little bit for me in 95. Oh, it would be my pleasure. So, you know, I, um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I learned a lot in my first couple of years with the big league uh, opportunity with the Angels, and Bob Boone was—he—he uh, he was my dad. I—I, I, I, you know, I—I I learned a lot from him. He put me underneath his wing and and uh, showed me the ropes and expected uh, me to um, learn, and and I did. And I was, uh, you know, I was a sponge. I just absorbed everything, and even. Those years with Gene Mock as the manager, everybody knew Bob Boone was the real manager. He managed the team. He was out there every day behind the plate. He ran the club. He ran the defense. And uh, so it was uh, – and I was so excited when Bob got the uh, manager's job for the, uh, for the Royals. And, uh, and, and here's the ironic part. The bench coach was Gene Mock, right? So all of a sudden – I go back in time with these two guys that I grew, you know, I broke in with now being the leaders of the Royals. And it was a, it was a thrill. It was an honor to play for them. Uh, I loved everything about what they did and they were great professionals. And, um, and, and again, I, I, um, there's so many things that I learned from Bob, so many things I learned from Gene Mock and, the one thing early on in my career, G. Mock looked at me and he said, son, if you ever think that you've know everything about this game, then it's time for you to hang your cleats up because you're not going to get any better. And uh, I, I, I truly agree with that. You know, players can learn something every game. Uh, for the most part, you'll see something every week that you've never seen in, in your life out on the baseball field. And 
and uh, you know, you, you keep your mouth shut and your eyes open, and you ju- just absorb everything that you 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 take in, and you become a, a, a better player. So um, I truly believe in that, and and I love your dad, and I I love my time playing with him, playing for him, and uh, we've been good good friends ever since. So my pleasure. As you mentioned, you were traded to the Padres. Teammate of yours, Kevin Towers, was the GM uh, for the San Diego Padres. Actually, traded tra- traded me and you. Yeah, uh, yeah. La- years later, but you're there from '96 to '99. Bruce Bochy's the skipper, who one of my favorite skippers that I had in my career. You're playing with Tony Gwynn, guys like Ricky Henderson. You mentioned the Hall of Famers previously that that you were playing with. Um, 1998. Uh, Padres go to the World Series. You, you have to go through Houston and Atlanta to get there. Uh, same same scenario. I to, I talked about in Atlanta for me getting swept by the Yankees. That ended up happening to you guys in the World Series. But take me through that first World Series for you in 1998. Yeah, it's what every kid plays in the backyard to achieve, right? Going to the World Series and and having the chance to play in a world series game, it was phenomenal. And we had an unbelievable team. We, thanks to Kevin and Bruce Bochy and uh, John Moores and Larry Lucchino, who put together an, an incredible team in 98. Uh, we bonded from the get go. Uh, I think one of the biggest uh, acquisitions we made that year prior to the season starting was getting, picking up Kevin Brown, who, arguably was one of the biggest horses and one of the best number one pitchers in the game. And he, uh, I, I think when he signed, I heard a huge exhale from all of the pitchers that were on that team because they were excited to have him. And now they could relax a little bit and be slotted second, third, fourth, and fifth instead of one and two. And they could pitch, and they could pitch with success. And Kevin Brown was going to go out there every five games, and he he dominated uh, every game that he pitched. So we had a an incredible pitching staff. But uh, I don't know where we ended up hitting that year, but uh, I think it was in the top one or two. Ken Caminiti at third base, Greg Bond in left field, Steve Finley in center. Uh, you know, and I haven't even mentioned Tony Gwynn yet in right field. We had uh, uh, myself at first, uh, Kilvio Veras, who was a great second baseman and could get on base. It was an incredible offense that, um, you know, we, we, we came in and, and we tried to win series. And, and um, you know, the Padres hadn't been to the World Series since the early 80s, and, and uh, we got there. And you mentioned going through Houston, which was – a tough, tough team with Randy Johnson pitching and then the uh, the unbeatable Braves who were a powerhouse in the 90s winning <clears throat> the National League East every year. And we had to go through that pitching staff. So it was a huge achievement for the Padres and for all of us. And it was uh, – we, 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 uh, we, we, we are on a, um, a group text, the 98 Padres, and we still get together and we still have fun and we still talk. And it was just a, a great ride for myself and for the team. And, you know, one of the, one of the great achievements that uh, you dream about when you uh, have a chance to be a professional player. And there you go on to Atlanta for a season. Um, 
And then you come back to Anaheim for you. Uh, for me, I, 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 I did. I, I knew my career was coming to an end. Uh, I was 38, soon to be 39, uh, 16 years in the big leagues. That was uh, a lot of games. Um, you know, my body was breaking down a little bit. I wasn't playing nearly as well as I did as a 25, 26 year old. So I thought it would be fun to play one more year and to uh, end my career where I started. So uh, I talked with the Angels, and uh, they had a spot for me. Mo Vaughn had blown his uh, his uh, bicep out working out in the offseason. So he was the first baseman. So there was going to be an opportunity for me to play first, and um, I got to spring training – and there were a lot of first basemen. Scott Spezio was at first base. And uh, so I was platooning. Uh, and my play time was reducing. And so halfway through the season, the Angels called me in and said, listen, um, we're not playing nearly as well as we can. And we're going to give some young players a chance to uh, prove themselves. So as little as you're playing now, it's even going to be worse. So will allow you to go talk to any team to get picked up and and go play. It's up to you. And I said, well, I think it's time for me to sail off into the sunset. So I uh, retired actually on my 39th birthday, June 16th of 1990 or 2001. And uh, uh, that was it. My season, my career was over. It was time. It was emotional because that's all I knew for – 18 years, two years in the minor leagues and 16 years in the big leagues. But um, it was a great run. Um, it was longer than I ever thought. And I absolutely appreciated every moment of uh, putting on the uniform and going out and playing that great game of baseball. It was a great career. 289 for a career, over 2,000 hits, over 100. 1100 ribbies uh now you move on and and uh you go back and, and you hook up with your old teammate from byu kevin towers work as a special assistant uh with the padres you're also a hitting coach with the padres you're a hitting coach with the phillies uh and you're a hitting coach with the tigers you did it for a lot of years very interesting to me and and as you know wally you walk around life and fans and, and baseball people talk to you about it, the the thing that i laugh about right away you know when a when a, a team doesn't play up to expectations us oh get rid of the hitting coach he sucks now we know it's a lot more complicated than that being a hitting coach i can talk hitting till the till the you know till i'm blue in the face i love the philosophy of hitting. I love the mental side to hitting. I love the preparation, the thought process, thinking through the at bat. I love all that, but I also do appreciate how tough it is to be a hitting coach because when your team rakes, that's because they're great hitters. And when your team doesn't hit well, that's because you suck as a hitting coach. <laughs> so I, you know, it's a tough position to be in. And I don't, I don't know that I'd want to do it because it's kind of a no-win situation you're sitting in. I played for a lot of different teams. Uh, I was around a lot of hitting guys. Very few could help me. But the, yep. the couple that I, that I related to, and, and for whatever reason, whatever they said translated to my thought process and worked, uh, 
it was tough. I remember, and, and we joke to this day, one of, one of my favorite players when I was a young player, uh, one of the best pure hitters, you'll probably agree with me on this one, is Paul Molitor. Yeah. He was my hitting coach in Seattle in 2004. And I remember him and myself at the end of the year, we're sitting there and we're flipping in the cage. I had a decent year that year uh, and we're doing flips and, and we're out of it. Seattle, we're finishing third place or whatever. And he looks at me and he goes, Booney, he said, I'll tell you what, when I played, he said, I knew how to get a hit. I said, yeah, you did, Paulie. And he goes, problem is I can't help you get a hit. <laughs> and we, we laugh to this day about it because whatever we were, you know, he was picking up. I wasn't putting down. And it's just, I love him as a man, respect the heck out of him for what he did. Uh, Hall of Famer. But we just didn't, we just didn't mesh. It's tough. Talk to me about the challenges of, of being a hitting coach and something maybe fans don't know about really what goes into it. Well, I, uh, I absolutely agree with you. I uh, not because this was the the uh, job that I took, but uh, I think that being a hitting coach in the big leagues is probably the toughest coaching job in the big leagues. Um, you're responsible for 13 guys every day. Uh, for the most part, if you if 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 you're doing a great job, two of those 13 guys are red hot. Seven of those guys are slumping. And uh, two or three of the guys have no idea, right? So um, it is a uh, it, it's a it's an unsuccessful position, as you mentioned. Uh, the front office, when we get 15 hits a game and we win by 10, it's because of who they drafted and and who they put on the team. If uh, we get beat by 10 and we get you know, one hit or two hits, It what's wrong with you and why can't you get these guys to hit, right? Um, the reality is, is that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, baseball is, is how you handle failure. Um, you know, you're going to, if you hit 350 in a year, that means you had 65% of unlucky at bats. And uh, as a hitting coach, you have uh, a lot of hats that you wear. You're a babysitter sometimes. You you're a uh, you're a liar most of the time uh, because you're trying to say positive things to a guy that's struggling and telling him that that's good. And um, you have to be patient. One of the biggest uh, parts of being a coach is to be able to not talk and to listen and watch and uh, figure out these guys. Um, you have to be, uh, willing to work. You have to be willing to be able to say one thing, seven, seven different ways. As you mentioned, you and Molitor, uh, to his credit, he, he realized how difficult and how useless he was for you. And, uh, but I don't think he stopped trying. Uh, and when I mentioned you have to be able to say one thing, seven different ways, uh, here's my example. So if I'm working with Brett Boone and he's jumping out and he's getting off his backside too soon, I could look at you and say, hey, just sit back a little bit. And then you, you keep swinging and, and it's not working. So then I go, okay, uh, have a soft front foot. And that's not working. Then I say, okay, don't stride. And then I say, you know, um, you know something else. 
all of these suggestions are asking you to do one thing, which is to stay back. And it might, you might not click when I tell you to sit on the backside, but it, you might click when I tell you to have a soft front foot. So I got to understand what clicks for you. And I have to remember it. So I go back to it when I'm working with you. So the players in the big leagues, including myself, when it was my time to work with the hitting coach, I wanted my time. I didn't want to be coached like uh, uh, Brett or like Brett Boone or Bob Boone or Doug DeSensei or Reggie Jackson because I was different and I wanted the, the I wanted to communicate with that hitting coach and know that he was working with me and that I was unique and not uh, you know you can't fool the players and if the players know that you're not putting the time in and you're not working specifically with them, then they're going to tune your tune out to you. And so uh, it, it's a tough position. I loved it. Uh, my last three years with the uh, Tigers, my last three years in, in, in being a hitting coach, we were number one or number two in hitting. We came into ballparks and that's what we did. We hit and it was fabulous. Now, did I have the opportunity to bring Victor Martinez and Miguel Cabrera and J.D. Martinez Tina's and Nick Castellanos on that team. No. So I appreciate what the front office did for me, but I and uh, Darnell Coles and Dave, uh, uh, Dave Newhan, uh, we worked with these guys. We made it fun and I think they appreciated it. So um, as hard as, as hard as of a job it was, it was probably one of my uh, best rewarding positions because I absolutely loved it. And I always, <clears throat> I often think about uh, teaching the teaching hitting, you know, like I said, the mental side, that's easy for me. I can talk all day about it, but the physical side. And I remember, you know, I played with Johnny Olerud for my last five years and, and uh, what a great hitter. One of my favorite teammates of all time, but we had a tough time communicating. We, yep. we talk about hitting because lefties and righties are different. Yep. And when I'm talking to a left-hander, <clears throat> I'll give you an example, Wally. As a, if a left-handed pitcher's on the mound, I can get away with a lot more as a right-handed hitter. I don't have to be as tight and as I, I can kind of be a little more loose. I can, I can get away with hanging out over the plate a little bit more because nine times out of ten, the ball's coming to me. Whereas yep. I got a tough righty on the mound. I got a John Smoltz out there throwing fastball slider, and I got a tough time picking up that spin. I have to have a tighter uh, tighter mechanics for it yep. to work. Did you, uh, did you find yourself sometimes talking to a right-handed hitter and put yourself in the position, okay, well, now I've got to put myself lefty on lefty because I have to relate to how that ball's looking to him coming in righty on righty. Yeah, without a doubt. <clears throat> and again, one of the um, worst things any coach can do talking to a player is to say <clears throat> this phrase, which was, well, when I hit or when I played, this is what worked, right? Right. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody, Nobody cares. cares what you did or how you did it. I need you to help me play. And I'm in here right now because I'm, I, 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 I suck and you're supposed to help me. So whenever a player and, and, and me also, if I heard that phrase from a hitting coach, I went, okay, well, what does that have to do with me? 
right? And so you you learn these things, you stay away from them, and uh, and for the most part, uh, the players in the big leagues they can play, and they know they can play. They just need a few uh, suggestions for them to use to see if that's going to work. And as a hitting coach, I check my ego at the door and I tell these guys, listen, this is what I see. It might not help you, but this is what I see. Let's try it. And if that didn't work, we'll try something else. And then as we get through spring training and start the season, I have a book on all of these players that are mine that I know what we can go to because this worked in the past and this is what makes you click and this is what makes you the best that you can be and that's what we go to. But there was never the same page for any player. They were all different and it was up to me as the hitting coach to uh, separate all that and not put two players together. And um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Darnell Coles, who was my assistant my first year with the Tigers, he now is the head guy for the Washington Nationals, and he's a fabulous hitting coach, and he does a great job. So I had a lot of uh, talented people around me uh, that helped me from the get-go. Uh, I learned a lot from Bob Boone, from all the players that I uh, played with uh, my first year through my last year. And, uh, again, I was very blessed to be able to, to have the opportunity and the career that I had. All right, I'm going to do one segment, then I'm going to let you go. I'm going to, I'm going to right. take this. I'm going to take my pen. I'm going to write this down. I'm going to write my two answers, what I think Wally Joyner is going to answer. And here's the question. Right. Here's the okay. question. First one, and this is only players you've played with. You played with a lot of Hall of Famers. Top of my head, you played with Ricky, Hoffy, Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. Played with Chipper. Yep. You played with Don Sutton as a young kid. Yep. You played with Reggie Winfield, Tony Gwynn, George Brett. They've been mentioned. Those are just some, but it doesn't necessarily have to be them. Anyone you ever played with. Here's the scenario. Game seven, World Series. You got one pitcher you're sending to the mound. Who is it? Trevor Hoffman. Okay. Game seven, runner on first and second, so there's not a base open. Life, the season's on the line. Everything's on the line. You need a base hit. Who you send into the dish? Chipper Jones. Wow. I was wrong. I had Kevin Brown and Tony Gwynn, but I'll tell you what. Hoffy and Jonesy aren't a, aren't a, bad, uh, aren't a bad combo. That's pretty awesome. I, and the, here's my answer to those uh, Trevor Hoffman in his prime, he made more guys look so silly with that Bugs Bunny changeup that, uh, you know, I'll take my chances with Trevor. He was dominant for a long time and over 600 saves. I'll, I'll take my chances with Trevor Hoffman. Chipper Jones, switch hitter, the best switch hitter I've ever played with and, and watched. And, uh, he could handle both sides. I mean, he, there wasn't a weak side to his his uh, ability. And I'll take my chances with Chipper Jones. Pretty awesome. Well, Wally Joyner, it's been a pleasure, man. I appreciate you coming on the Boone yes, Podcast. Sir. It was a lot of fun. And what we do each and every Boone Podcast, at the end of the podcast, 
as we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast, EP executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor. Share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the boom podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the boone 29 i'm dan levy b-a-s-s on air that is base on air all of my social medias thanks for listening we'll do it again soon have a great one